Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle rip-roaring science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the science of choice, if you care to listen. And E.T. won't go home. But first up, here's the news with Aaron Cook. The Large Hadron Collider breaks a world record, a massive iceberg heads towards Australia, and who's farting on Mars? Physicists operating the Large Hadron Collider in Europe have achieved a world record, smashing together protons to achieve collision energies of 2.36 trillion electron volts, or TeV. The collider accelerates two counter-rotating streams of protons to nearly the speed of light, before bringing the two streams together head-on. Scientists hope to eventually reach collision energies of 14 TeV, which some hope will reveal the existence of the mysterious Higgs boson that could explain how particles acquire mass. And while we're on the topic of mass, an iceberg more than twice the size of New York's Manhattan Island is drifting slowly towards Australia. With a surface area of 140 square kilometres, The giant broke off an ice shelf 10 years ago and has been loitering in Antarctic waters since then, before recently heading north. Neil Young, of the Australian Antarctic Division, said it's one of the biggest ever sighted at its current latitude. It is currently 1,700 kilometres off the coast of West Australia, but is expected to melt long before reaching land. And finally, if you ever make it to Mars and smell something suspicious, Don't blame it on the guy in the spacesuit next to you. It could be life. Scientists have discovered that the supply of methane in Mars' atmosphere is constantly being replenished by an unknown source. Researchers have ruled out meteorites as the source of the gas, leaving only two plausible theories. The methane could be a byproduct of reactions between volcanic rock and water, or it could be created by microorganisms in the Martian soil. Professor Mark Sefton, one of the study's authors, says that while researchers are narrowing the possibilities, the final test will have to be carried out by a trip to Mars. I'm Aaron Cook, and that was Diffusion News. What is the process of making a decision? Dr Stephen Bush is a lecturer in the Department of Mathematical Sciences and researcher at the Centre for the Study of Choice. He chose to explain the science of choice to me, and I began by asking, what is the study of choice? Well, it's statistics and being able to understand how people make decisions. A lot of people would think that was psychology, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Well, there is a lot of psychology in it. However, there's also a lot of statistical modelling in there as well because 
we need to be able to breaking it down into what is actually driving somebody's choice. So that you can get a better understanding of what's behind the choices. Yeah, so you can get a better understanding of what's behind the choices. Because I, I could ask you what features of a mobile phone are most preferable to you, but I'm just going to get what you think you'd say rather than what you'd actually say in a real-world scenario. And we're really after the latter because the people we work with actually want to know what you'll actually do rather than what you say you'll do. How do you find out what people really want? So what we do is we lay out scenarios. So, for example, the mobile phones. We may give you three mobile phones. We tell you a few things about them. We call those attributes. We tell you some of those attributes and we ask you which one you prefer, which one you'd actually buy. Perhaps we'd also ask you whether you'd buy it if it was placed in front of you. In a typical survey question, everyone's going to say, yes, we want an emissions trading scheme that's really hard and it's going to sort of be the harshest one on business, the harshest one on the energy supplies. However, when people actually realise that that's going to cost something and that there's some trade-off that they need to make, then people reconsider. People start thinking more with their their hip (laughs) pockets, really. How do you get those second thoughts of people? Well, what we do there is we actually set up hypothetical policies. So we may say that the first policy has a 20% target, a certain increase in taxes, certain level of fuel levies, and so forth. And then we'll present a competing policy that has maybe a a different carbon reduction target and maybe a different fuel levy. And we ask you to trade off between them. And what the statistics, the statistical models allow us to do is actually convert the choices that people are making into what is actually driving those decisions. So is it that people are actually interested in the the 20% or 15% carbon reduction, or are they more interested in the fuel levy? And I understand you can look at the strategies people use to make choices as well. There are a few competing strategies. For example, one of my colleagues has been working on the idea that people pick out a certain feature and they make their decision based on that feature. And if they've still got a couple of feasible alternatives, then they'll go on to their next important feature. Some others say that you would actually have a look at the whole policy or the whole mobile phone and use those to compete with the other mobile phones sort of as one group. So that's like if you go into a shop. I know if you go shopping with friends, some people like to look at absolutely everything in the shop like they're cataloguing it and some people just go for the section that they know has what they want and some people look at the pretty labels and... Is that the sort of thing? Yeah, that, that, that's the sort of thing. So, some people will put a lot of emphasis, say, on, on the label. Uh, other people will want to have a look a little bit deeper and actually see, well, turn the label around, maybe it's a pasta sauce, and have a look at the nutrition. Is it 90% fat-free or, or is it full of tomatoes, no preservatives? So some people will have one thing that they're after. Other people will want to have a look at the product as a whole. What we're really trying to do here is actually place the respondent in a hypothetical situation, give them, maybe it's three different types of 
pasta sauce that they can choose between. Very small, hypothetical situation. It actually turns out that people aren't so good at making choices between lots of things. People get confused. But by actually placing somebody in a hypothetical scenario, we can actually have a look at how they're actually thinking. So what it, what are they thinking when they make the choice? What features do they tend to be looking at in general? And we, and we do that by putting people in repeated scenarios. So we won't just give them one supermarket shelf, say. We'll give them a series of these supermarket shelves and ask them to make a choice in each one. So we've talked about putting scenarios in front of people and we've talked about hypotheticals. Where's the mathematics in all of this? So when we actually create these scenarios, we use what's called a factorial design, which comes from a lot of the original experimentation in agriculture and some of the theory that R.A. Fisher used back in the 30s at the very beginning of statistics. And the idea here is that we can talk about these features, not just as words, but we can actually express them mathematically and use mathematical concepts like um, modular arithmetic to actually create these, what we call choice sets. But you can think of them as the scenarios that we're placing people into. Modular arithmetic. Would you be able to elaborate a little? So what that means is that we're looking at whole numbers and we're looking at whole numbers up to a certain number. So if I talk modular 2, I'm talking in binary, so 0 and 1. So I I can add 1 and 1 and I go back to 0. So if if I'm talking about modulo 3, I'm now looking at 0, 1 and 2. So if I have a product that has, let's say, the flavour of the pasta sauce, there may be three different flavours, sort of cheese, tomato and garlic. And I could actually express those as 0, 1 and 2 in my choice set. So I can reduce what seems to be a very practical situation into mathematical language and then use that and some mathematical results to actually construct choice sets in a way that are really quite efficient. So I can sort of collect the information that I need in as few choice sets as possible. So I I don't want to be asking too many questions. I don't want to have people do the same repetitive task over and over again, because if if they do that, they're going to get really tired, they're going to get bored, and they're going to go away. Right. (laughs) They're going to say, I don't want to answer anymore. So what we want to do is we want to get the information we need in as few of these scenarios as possible, and that's where optimal design comes in. So a couple of small problems that I've actually had a look at in my PhD. The first one was actually to have a look at what happens when people can't decide. So sometimes people see two products and they go, well, you know, I don't really mind. Both of them are just as good. And the psychologists in sort of the the utility theory, where all of these models actually come from, 
call this an equal preference. And what my research has been looking at is actually how can I model a scenario where people are allowed to say, yes, these two things are the same in, in their utility. So in how much benefit they think they're going to get out of it. Fascinating. Another thing I've actually been looking at is whether the order of presentation is actually useful, whether that actually influences the decision somebody makes. If you think about a supermarket shelf, you've got things that are put up high and they're not at eye level. So people don't really look up because it hurts their neck. And people don't really look down because, again, it hurts their neck, it hurts their back as well. So the things that are placed in front of you are quite likely to be chosen more often just because people are a little bit lazy. So the idea of incorporating positions into a choice model allows us to actually figure out whether people are choosing an item just because it's straight in front of them or whether it's because of the features that we're actually interested in modelling. Very, very interesting. Stephen Bush, thank you very much. Thanks. Dr. Stephen Bush studied a Bachelor's in Mathematics and Finance and then a Bachelor of Science Honours degree in Statistics. Then after some time in industry, he completed a PhD in Mathematics. He now works at the Centre for the Study of Choice at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. science. They go well together, don't they? Like Mark West and Darren Osborne. Mark and Darren talked about the search for extraterrestrial life, and the first question Mark asked Darren was, does he believe in little green men? That's a very good question, Mark, and one that there's probably no real answer to. But you're asking what I think. Uh, My answer would be yes, I think there is extraterrestrial life out there, because it's it's a bloody big universe. And we're just a small part of it, a small bit player, and you know, there are many, many stars in our galaxy and there are many galaxies in the universe. So you know, the odds say that, we sh- that there, there, there could be other life out there. But then, who knows, I mean, maybe we're just one of those freak chances um, in, in, in nature that uh, somehow created what we are. Or maybe there is some you know, super being that, that has created um, us and, and, and created this backdrop that is the universe that surrounds us all. So uh, my, my gut feeling is yes, but if the answer was no, well, I wouldn't be surprised. What about yourself? Well, it's a good question. I guess there's a difference between just any old extraterrestrial life and intelligent life. I'd find it hard to believe that we're the only life of any kind in the universe, simply because the universe is so big. We're finding more and more Earth-like planets every day, planets with water, planets with oxygen. There's planets and moons of Jupiter 
in, uh, in our solar system that quite possibly, most probably have liquid water. So I think that the chances of extraterrestrial life at all are probably high, I guess. But uh, intelligent life is the, is the bigger question. There's always that question, if there is intelligent life out there, why haven't we seen it? I think this is the Fermi paradox. Surely if there's intelligent life out there, we would have seen it by now, unless we're the first intelligent life forms to arise in the universe, which would have a minute probability. What do you think of this idea? Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, the Fermi paradox would suggest that if there is, we've, we've been contacted. But as I said in the in, uh, earlier on, you know, it is a very big universe. Um, and, and even to, you know, the nearest star from us is, is 4.2 4 light years away. And we don't, we don't believe there are any planets around that one. I, I don't know off the top of my head where the nearest sort of exoplanets are. Um, but, you know, maybe if there is intelligent life, it is spread pretty thinly. And therefore it is... Uh, even physically difficult for us to contact each other, let alone travel to each other. So, I mean, that could be that could be one reason. As you say, it could be also that we are the first ones to have come about because um, the universe is only about 13 billion years old, um, and you know the stars that 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 are similar to ours are only sort of recent in their in their formation. They 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 didn't start after the Big Bang and certainly weren't the first group of stars that started. So, you know, maybe we are the beginning of what could be a proliferation of life throughout the universe. I, I mean, certainly there's, there's been a lot of effort in the last 50 years trying to see if there are other signs of life out there, um, even though we can't get to it and maybe it, has, it can't get to us. Um, there's been a lot of research and work in the area of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, where you know they use those radio antennas around the world. Um, if you haven't seen the film Contact, that's probably a film worth watching to get an idea of what SETI is all about. Yeah, and we've been listening for those signals that might come from intelligent or unintelligent worlds uh, that, that that are being emitted. But you know, I mean, that's really a needle in a haystack sort of proposition. I mean, you're scanning hundreds of thousands of different radio frequencies pointing in, in massive different, you know, a huge number of different points in the sky at different objects and that. I mean, the chances of picking up something are pretty small, but I mean, there have been some interesting findings in the past, haven't there? There have been. There was the, the very famous WOW signal, which was uh, picked up at Ohio State University, which was a 37 second long signal which uh, was so startling that the astronomer who was monitoring it at the time wrote WOW next to it on the, side of the, uh, on the side of the printout. And it's never actually been explained, this particular WOW signal. Uh, and you're right, there are you know, infinite number of wavelengths of, in the electromagnetic spectrum that we could be looking at. I think one of the things that SETI is doing is looking at uh, what, what's called the waterhole. I was speaking to Dr. Carol Oliver from the Australian Centre for Astrobiology recently about the waterhole. And the waterhole is a, a piece in the electromagnetic spectrum between emission lines of hydrogen and the hydroxyl ion. And combined, these two make water, and water is considered to be elemental for life. It's considered to be necessary for life. So if there's going to be anywhere in the spectrum that aliens or extraterrestrial life may emit, it may be in this waterhole. It's also very quiet in this spectrum. Uh, with regards to noise from outer space. Okay, so it's all very well and good to think about, you know, the search for intelligent life out there, but I, I think before you can even consider whether there's intelligent life there, you have to find some form of life. And, and I think that's the real kicker for me, is that 
the day that they find a form of life, and it can be as small as a microbe, that's when you start to open the door to the possibility that there is life throughout the universe. Because if you can't find that microbe, then the chances of finding anything are pretty remote. And I think that's where the focus turns to, to our own solar system, where there's been uh, you know, a number of uh, spacecraft that have been sent throughout our solar system looking for signs um, of current or past forms of microbial life. And some of those most likely destinations um, seem to be Mars, uh, the uh, Jovian moon Europa and also uh, Saturn's moon um, Titan. I mean there's a few other candidates there as well but they're, they're the big three I think that where they're looking for and and in, in recent times um, I think the, the Mars Phoenix lander back in 2008 landed near the North Pole of Mars um, it found uh, the presence of water in the form of ice underneath the surface and that certainly has piqued the interest of, uh, of, uh, of astronomers and astrobiologists um, and so forth because as you said earlier on uh, without water there's the presumption that there is no life in the universe so um, yeah it's, it's still a long way from finding a microbe but if you can find water, um, which they have done in, in that location and possibly in a few other locations in the, in the uh, solar system, then um, you're on the right path. Well, there was a recent, uh, well, not so recent, but in 96 they discovered, well, NASA controversially announced that they had found what appeared to be fossilised microbes in a lump of Martian rock, which was found in Antarctica. Not long after that, it was said, no, no, these are just natural processes. Uh, Mar Mars had liquid water. Uh, this is just caused by the presence of liquid water, uh, not by life. But actually, just recently, in the last week or so, a few people have come out saying that, no, actually, these, this is evidence of life once being on Mars, which is really interesting. But it shows that there's, there's, there's quite a lot of debate here. It's not that clear-cut at the moment un until we find a bit of moss growing on a rock whether or not there is or was life on Mars. And, and actually there's been a, a recent development in that particular rock because um, just uh, this week uh, a paper was published, um, I can't remember the, the name of the journal, um, it's not one of the major ones like in the case of 96 when it was published I think in Nature, um, but that same rock uh, and the same researchers have found that what, what they've essentially been trying to do is look at the, the geological explanations for those, um, for those traces and they've been able to eliminate one of them. So they're, they're still working today to try and strengthen their case uh, with that particular sample, ALH84001, um, to, uh, to <laughs> yeah, you remember it quite well, <laughs> uh, to work out w whether it is, it is a, a natural, um, you know, come from, from a biological life form or a geological one. And I mean, there's still a debate too, um, uh, even on Earth, you know, trying to work out what were the earliest life forms on Earth. And uh, Malcolm Walter, who's also from the Australian Centre for Astrobiology, um, I mean, he's it present him and, and a number of colleagues have presented evidence of you know of similar life forms found in in Earth rocks from uh, the Pilbara and from Canada, some of the sources of the oldest rocks on the, on our planet, and, and suggested they're they're uh, biological in origin. But there's been counter evidence from researchers. Um, I can't remember his name from the University of uh, from Curtin University in Perth. I'm um, showing that no, you can have chemical processes that create very similar um, uh, relics, you know, these twisted chains that look like maybe DNA or look like, you know, uh, nanobacteria. So the jury is still out, even here on Earth, as to what, what are microbial life forms and traces thereof. I guess when you trace life back to its chemical origins, it's quite difficult to tell the difference between what is a chemical 
reaction and what is a, a biological process. Back, if you, if you trace it back, there's there's little difference. I guess at some point there's some spark of life. I'm not sure what the the current definition of life is even. You know, talking about the idea of going from RNA to DNA and and even the steps leading up to that, um, we still don't know what is life, as you say, and, and whether life can be created from inorganic compounds. And that there was an experiment back in, was it 1950s or 1960s? I can't remember the name of the person um, exactly who it was, um, but you know, it took a, a glass flask, filled it with you know what they thought was the primordial or um, you know very early Earth's atmosphere, put in a few uh, chemicals, and uh, claimed to have created some sort of organic compounds. Um, now that experiment hasn't really been replicated since, I don't think. But uh, certainly the question of how do you get from the inorganic to the organic is one that scientists still are trying to answer today. The search for E.T. goes on, but the search for good beer is solved. That was Mark West and Darren Osborne looking for alien life. And finally, Chinese authorities have offered to pay people from 1,000 yuan to 10,000 yuan, which is about 150 to $1,500, if they dob in porn sites on a telephone hotline. Think about that for a moment. It's a telephone line for reporting sexual material on the internet. They, had, they say they had over 500 calls for over 13,000 tips in their first day. However, before you reach for the phone, you need to remember this is China, so you won't automatically be paid for your tips. Instead, you'll have to wait for a committee to discuss and decide how valuable your tip was in preventing Chinese citizens from accessing sexual information. Of course, you need to live in China so you can tell if the sex site is available from within China, and if you report to the authorities that you have viewed an illegal site, then, just like in Australia, they will take you to jail. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Aaron Cook, Mark West and Patrick Ruby. Diffusion has been produced by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you've had quite enough, just read. Remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour, the galaxy we call the Milky Way. Our galaxy itself can
contains a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred thousand light years side to side. It bulges in the middle, sixteen thousand light years thick, but out by us it's just three thousand light years wide. We're thirty thousand light years from galactic central point. We go round every two hundred million years. Our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. On expanding and expanding in all of the directions it can whiz, as fast as it can go at the speed of light, you know, 12 million miles a minute, and that's the fastest speed there is. So remember when you're feeling very small and insecure, how amazingly unlikely is your birth, and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space, 'cause there's bugger all 